Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets near the end of the Old Testament. In fact, you're almost to Matthew at that point. It's only three chapters long. And we'll be getting a new series today on Zephaniah. might take five or so sermons. We'll see how it goes. But at least this month of March, we'll be looking at the prophecies of Zephaniah. Today, I want to look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. O Lord God, we give thanks to you for by your spirit speaking by the prophets of old. We pray that you would bring this word to us and to our hearts and minds today, that we might understand and heed and listen attentively uh, to your word, uh, that you would work in us in this way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 1, we have an introduction to the book that sets the context uh, for these prophecies. Pro uh, Zephaniah is the name of the prophet, and it lists his genealogy, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, his great-great-grandfather. Uh, it's a little unusual that it goes back so far in introducing it. You know, often you'll have so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, but here it goes all the way back to his great-great-grandfather, Hezekiah. Um, 
I think that lends weight to the idea that this was a very important Hezekiah. That's why it goes back so far. Uh, even King Hezekiah, uh, I think, is uh, who we are supposed to think of. Uh, Hezekiah had been a good king, and Hezekiah had sought to follow the Lord, but he had a wicked son, Manasseh, who reigned after him, who had a long reign after him. Uh, Manasseh, and that's who we read about in Second Kings 21. Uh, Manasseh had introduced idolatry and many evil practices. And then he had a son named Ammon. Manasseh had a son, Ammon, who only reigned for two years, a short reign, but he continued in the ways of his father, and his reign is cut short. He has a son then who is still quite young when he becomes king, and his name is Josiah. Josiah then was king when Zephaniah was prophesying. Uh, Josiah started young, and he departed from the ways of his father and grandfather. Instead, he sought uh, in time to bring about reforms. Um, and even in the midst of those reforms, uh, rediscovered the, the law and the temple, and uh, in repentance sought to bring back the people uh, to the ways of the Lord. And so there were great reforms, reformation in the days of Josiah, seeking to uh, take away the idols and idolatry, uh, to resume the Passover and the appointed ordinances for Israel. Those were the days Zephaniah prophesied. We don't know when in Josiah's reign Zephaniah prophesied. He probably prophesied, of course, more than just one year, uh, perhaps throughout much of Josiah's reign. Perhaps his prophecies helped spark this Reformation. Perhaps it accompanied the Reformation to exhort the people to follow through on it. Really, the same message would have been relevant throughout Josiah's reign. Because even after he established his Reformation, the prophets continued to rebuke the people's insincerity. What Josiah did was good, but many, many of the people did not use the opportunity well. They had God's ordinances reinsta reinstated, the idols taken away, yet many of them still clung to those idols in their heart. As Jeremiah would say, who prophesied beginning in the days of Josiah, the people have returned, but only in pretense. And so Zephaniah could have prophesied throughout this time, perhaps earlier, perhaps later, but really the message would have been relevant in the aftermath of Manasseh and Ammon, the idolatry of worship of the Baals, the worship of the host of heaven. Uh, this had corrupted the ways of Israel. It was not long after Josiah's reign that the Babylonians came. Uh, Josiah was near the end of the monarchy of Judah. The last four kings of Judah were the four kings after Josiah. There are four more kings. Three of them were his sons. One of them was his grandson. So they're all very close to Josiah. Josiah died in 609 BC. It was only a few years later in 605 BC that Nebuchadnezzar began to reign and first conquered Jerusalem. That's when Daniel was taken into exile. Uh, there's a second wave in which Ezekiel is taken into exile. And then it's in 586 that Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. And so all of this is on the horizon. Of course, most people can't see it. 
but the prophets could see that something was coming. God had revealed that uh, there was a reckoning coming, uh, that God, who was patient, who was long-suffering, yet would act in accordance with his word. And so we see in verses 2 through 6 that God comes with sweeping judgment against his covenant people for their apostasy and their idolatry. The Lord comes, and he will sweep away everything from the face of the land. The world will collapse about them. Uh, There will be destruction that will come from the Lord. In describing here the earth in Zephaniah, uh, it can also be translated the ground or the land. It's not necessarily referring to the whole globe, uh, like we think of planet Earth. Now, the reference to mankind might hint at the fact that, indeed, Jerusalem's judgment would be part of a broader judgment upon the nations that would occur in the following decades. In fact, judgment would come upon the other nations, too, and we'll get to that later in Zephaniah. But also the references to mankind are probably here in contrast to the animals, because he also talks about how this destruction is going to sweep the land clean. There's going to be destruction, and it's going to affect man and beast. Just picture this desolation coming upon the land because of the sin of its inhabitants. It'll be a sweeping judgment, sweeping away both man and beast from the land. The land suffers because of man's sin. That's true generally, right? Why is there a curse upon the earth and it's under bondage to corruption? Is it under bondage to corruption willingly? Is that, is that the way the creation was designed to work? Did, did God make the world subject to corruption in the beginning? No. No, it's because of man's sin. Because of Adam's sin. Well, here also in the case of Judah... Their sin would bring destruction upon the land where they lived. Now, there's a reference here to sweeping away the rubble with the wicked. It could also be translating the stumbling blocks with the wicked. Uh, Stumbling blocks here probably refer to the idols. That God's going to purify the land. He's going to take away the wicked. He's going to take the idols, the causes of sin, the stumbling blocks that they have stumbled upon. And he's going to uproot them. And this is language or imagery that's picked up by Jesus in uh, his description or his interpretation of the parable of the weeds. Speaking in his day of the final judgment yet to come. There he says, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. He will purify his kingdom, even as God would purify his covenant people back then, so uh, finally and utterly, perfectly, on that final day of judgment, taking away out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Now, why was this judgment coming that Zephaniah proclaimed? Who was it coming upon? Who was going to be cut off? What had they done wrong? Did you catch it? We learn this in verses 4 through 6. Those who worshipped Baal, a false god. Those who had worshipped the host of heaven, like the sun, the moon, and the stars. God had warned them in Deuteronomy, careful when you look up to the heavens, don't worship those. I made them. I'm the Lord. 
don't worship the stars. Don't worship false gods. Don't worship idols. Have no other gods before me. But this is indeed what many of the people had done. They had sought for refuge and prosperity by adding these other gods to the Lord, their God. They had still gone through the motions of worshiping Jehovah, the God of Israel, but they also swore by Milcom, uh, by another god, by another king that they uh, swore by. To swear is a, a form of religious worship. You're invoking God as a witness of your heart and the intentions uh, and, uh, of your words uh, to hold you accountable for what you say. Whether you're swearing allegiance to God or whether you're swearing by God, it's a form of worship. You should only swear by the Lord, but they would swear by the Lord and they'd swear by the other gods too. Uh, they were not being faithful. They were being unfaithful. They were falling away from the Lord. And that's what we find in verse 6. <clears throat> They're described as the remnant of Baal, those who worship the host of heaven. But in verse 6, it describes them by their true relationship to the Lord. Though they bowed down before the Lord, what was their real relationship with the Lord? They had turned back from following the Lord. They had not sought the Lord. They had not inquired of the Lord. Those are the things which they ought to have done. But because they had not done these things, they would be swept away. They would be punished. What can we learn from these first verses, verses 2 through 6? Well, first of all, the Lord's judgment is powerful and consuming. Nothing can stand before it. Does this building look pretty secure? Do the roads out there look pretty stable? They were there last week. They were there the week before. There's animals around. There's the sun, moon, and stars. There's lots of things that we can take for granted. But the Lord's judgment is powerful. The Lord's judgment is irresistible. And it can sweep anything in a way that it's in its path. Much less can a man resist it. Things that seem normal and stable can be swept away by his judgment. And of course, on that final day of judgment, everything will be stripped away. You will be there before the judgment seat of Christ. And it'll be a day of reckoning. The earth, we can also learn, suffers on account of man's sin. And I already mentioned that. In general, and then in particular judgments and, and destructions. Only after the final judgment, when sinners are consumed away, off the face of the earth, shall the earth be fully made new and restored and glorified and made secure. In Psalm 104, the, the psalmist delights in the goodness of creation and the beautiful things of the earth. And he ends that psalm by saying, let sinners be consumed from the earth. That's the, it, it is in that final judgment that indeed uh, creation will, will be released from its corruption to bondage. And that we will, who, who have trusted in Christ, inherit a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Learn also that those who turn away from the Lord will be swept away like chaff. You know what chaff is? It's like uh, the, the, the straw part of, of wheat. 
You have the kernels of wheat that's heavy and it falls to the ground, but the chaff blows away in the wind and is swept away and it's gone. Both Old Testament and New Testament talk about the one who turns away from the Lord. The way of this world is passing away. But who abides? Who remains? Who is the one that is rooted? The one who does the will of God abides forever. The one who remains in Christ will abide forever. The one who meditates upon his law day and night will remain sturdy like a tree that bears fruit in good season. The only way to obtain true stability is by seeking the Lord and his grace. Learn also that the Lord calls his people to exclusive loyalty. Jesus also called in, you know, as God himself come in the flesh for our salvation. He called people to put him above all, to love him above all, to be loyal to him as their Lord and master. You can't serve two masters. You must even deny yourself and follow me that you might gain your life. You must have no other gods before the true and living God. No other masters beside him or alongside of him. It is a fearful thing to fall away from the living God. Beware of hypocrisy like these people who are going through the motions, who are bowing down before the Lord and yet trusting in other gods, who yet did not mean what they were doing, who were there among the people of God in Jerusalem, the holy city, and yet had not sought the Lord had not truly inquired of him, had turned back from following him. Instead, follow the Lord, seek the Lord, inquire of the Lord. That means listen to his word and receive it by faith. That means pray to him sincerely through Christ. He is gracious. He will not reject the one who comes to him. He has provided a way to escape the wrath to come. Those who come to Christ will not be cast out. Believe in the true God, in his grace. And by that faith, pray to him. By that faith, listen to him. Resolve to follow Christ and don't turn back. No turning back. But persevere to the end. Look on then to verses 7 through 9. 7 through 9 describes the day of the Lord. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. The day of the Lord is a phrase that shows up in more than one prophet, uh, in both Old and New Testament. And it's not always referring to the same day. It's used in Scripture not only for the final day of judgment, but for any day of judgment. It is the day of reckoning, the day of intervention, a day of visitation. It is the time in which Jehovah makes himself known by deeds of judgment and deliverance. It refers to a time, not necessarily a 24-hour day, 
uh, but it's the more metaphorical use of that term. A time in which the Lord acts and makes himself known in judgment, in deliverance, in salvation. It refers to historical judgments, like the one that came upon ancient Jerusalem through Babylon. It came upon other nations too. The day of the Lord came upon Egypt when it was defeated by Babylon. You could look in Jeremiah 46. I think it was 46. Of course, it's also used to refer to that final day of judgment at Christ's return, especially in the New Testament. That is the most important day and and overshadows all the rest. But God is patient. He's long-suffering. He doesn't always punish something right away. He gives time for repentance. He is kind, and he delays for that purpose. Uh, He is patient and long-suffering, and for a time it can seem like the wicked get away with it, that those who despise God and who spurn his grace seem to do well, and those who follow him, who hold fast to him, can seem to suffer and to go through trials. But the Lord will act. In time, God acts and vindicates his word, vindicates his name. He cuts off the power of the wicked. He delivers his faithful ones. He purifies and restores his people. That is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord here is described as a sacrifice. Well, sacrifices are usually good, right? Well, not if you're the one being sacrificed. Here it's describing a day of slaughter. Of course, a lot of people were familiar with what a sacrifice looked like. There's a lot of blood in a sacrifice. There's a lot of killing in a sacrifice. But here, the guests that were invited were the ones to be sacrificed. He says, I will punish these people on the day of this sacrifice. They are the beasts to be slaughtered. Who? Well, from high to low, the royalty... The king's sons, those who wear foreign attire. Uh, That probably refers to the fact that many in the courts and the palaces were more associating with the nations around them, uh, with their idolatry, with their ways, with their clothing. Perhaps they weren't wearing those tassels and, you know, marks that were uh, ceremonies that were supposed to make them distinct, but they were wearing foreign attire instead. Perhaps it was the servants of the same people who are described in verse 9, those who are filling their master's house with violence and fraud. There's some debate, is the master's house referred to the temple? Jeremiah describes how they were making the temple like a den of of thieves, a den of robbers, taking refuge in the Lord while acting in in, in violence and fraud toward their neighbor. Uh, Or, as, as the translations more reflect, describing how they would work for their masters and fill them up with stuff that were taken by violence and fraud. In any case, the violence and the fraud would be punished, uh, would be judged, uh, that these wicked ways were contrary to God's law. So learn from these verses. First of all, as the first verse says, uh, verse 7, be silent before the Lord God. Pay attention to him and to his day. Be silent before the Lord. Be reverent before God. 
Uh, Secondly, rely on the sacrifice of Christ so that you do not become the sacrifice. That idea of a sacrifice is supposed to be a substitute for you, right? You're trusting in the, the lamb that God would provide to take away the sins of the world. But that same imagery is used to describe his judgment, which falls upon those who spurn his grace, who turn back from the Lord, and who are, who are judged. And in particular, turn aside from violence and fraud. Uh, in the mornings, we've been going through the Ten Commandments. We looked at the Sixth Commandment, do not murder, do not kill, uh, both in thought, word, and deed. Uh, this is the way that had filled the earth before the flood and brought down judgment upon it. Uh, turn aside from violence. Turn aside from fraud, from thieving. Uh, that's what we looked at today, this morning. Always you shall not steal. Do not take the shortcut, avoiding honest labor to try to take from what belongs to your neighbor, either by deceit, by lying, by theft, by robbery. These are the ways... Uh, that are perishing, that are swept away in the Lord's judgment, ways that we should seek uh, God's mercy for and turn away from them. Final part of our passage is verses 10 through 13. 10 through 13. God's judgment comes crashing down upon the complacent. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods will be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The word complacent here is is really kind of a translation of a metaphor, um, which would be that they are thickening on the dregs, uh, that they are are settled on the lees. Uh, The idea of dregs of wine, that they're just setting there. Either you can picture them just kind of sipping their wine and laying back, but probably more so that they are like wine that's aging. They're just sitting there. They're complacent. They're self-satisfied. Why? Because they're saying in their heart, they're thinking to themselves, the Lord's not going to do good. The Lord's not going to do evil. The Lord's not going to do anything. They have no fear of God before their eyes. And so they are at ease. They might not have said that out loud. Notice it says they said this in their hearts. If you ask them, do you fear the Lord? They might have said, yes, I fear the Lord. But their assumption was that the Lord wasn't actually going to do anything, that the Lord was not relevant to life in their day. Their attitude, their inner thoughts, in their hearts, they did not think that God was relevant They did not credit the good they experienced to the Lord, and they did not fear his judgment. How modern that attitude seems. Do people today have this attitude that uh, God is not really behind any of the bad things that happen? That the good things that we've done, because we're good and we've done good things, 
my power and the might of my hand have given me this wealth, and I don't need to fear God's judgment. That assumption, even if it's unspoken, that attitude, uh, this ignoring of God pervades our culture, and many people, therefore, do not give attention to God. But let that not be you, because the peace of the complacent will be destroyed by the crash of the day of the Lord. Whether that's a historical judgment, a personal judgment, like the parable of the rich fool, right, who heaps up treasure for himself and is like, oh, eat, drink, be merry, all shall be well, and then he dies. That's a day of the Lord for him personally, right? All of that that he thought he was secure, it really didn't mean anything when he encounters death. What could happen to a, a country can happen to a people, and of course it will one day happen to the earth when Christ returns. So do not be complacent, lest you be awakened by the crashing doom of judgment. Do not trust in your wealth. Do not trust in your power. Do not trust in your economy. Give thanks to God for the good things. The Lord does do good. That is done by God too. And uh, fear him, knowing that both uh, disaster and prosperity come from the hand of the Lord in his wisdom and his providence. So fear the Lord and take refuge in him. He is the place of safety. Those who seek the Lord will be safe in the day of judgment. And in fact, to them, the day of the Lord is a good thing. To them, the day of the Lord is a day of deliverance that they desire, even, even as they might tremble with joy, joy with trembling at an awesome day. But uh, to those who have taken refuge in the Lord, his power, his might is a source of strength and confidence because he is the one that they have taken refuge in. And that is what God wants you to do, to take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. So do not despise him. Do not turn back from following him. The Lord is patient, but he is not powerless. He will sweep away the wicked. The day of the Lord is something we should be silent before. But then to seek him, to inquire of him. May that be true of all of us. Join with me in prayer. O Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for your warnings as well as your promises, uh, for your commandments, for your whole word. And we pray that you would uh, work in us by faith that we might embrace the promises and to seek you uh, all our days, uh, that you would teach us to, by this faith, obey your commandments and to heed your word. And that by the same faith, we would tremble at the threatenings and so uh, see our sin with grief and hatred as repugnant to you and to take safety and in your, and take refuge in your mercy. Uh, we pray that you would not only stir our hearts in this way, but our countrymen, our neighbors, even the nations throughout the world. We pray that you would work powerfully uh, for their salvation before that final day comes. We pray that you would bring people into the kingdom of grace to keep them in it and also to hasten that great and final day in the kingdom of glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.